This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, a weekly technical podcast discussing development, design, and the business of software development. I'm Chad Pytel, and with me today is Matt Amonetti, co-founder of Splice. Hey, Matt. Hi, Chad. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me. I'm great. How, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So you are in sunny Southern California, right? Yeah, I'm in Santa Monica. Yeah, and I am in snowy Boston, Massachusetts today. <laughs> and I'm recording from home today because uh, of the big snowstorm we're having. And so uh, we're going to try to make it work. Uh, this is episode 133. You can find the show notes at giantrobots.fm slash 133. Uh, Matt, tell me about Splice. Yeah, so Splice is a startup I founded, co-founded in 2003, October 2003, with Steve Martosi, who is the co-founder of GroupMe. Was a, a, it's still a group text messaging yep. uh, based in New York. And um, Steve and I met in Colombia, in Bogota, Colombia. A few years back when we were both speaking at a conference and I was talking about seven programming languages within an hour and he was talking about how to run a business and how to build a successful startup. And um, we got talking and we decided to, to build Splice uh, a bit later. And Splice is a cloud-based music platform or a platform for musicians to create and collaborate and distribute their music. So we basically take the concept of version control for music, but apply that to the world of music creators. So we kind of invent Git and kind of a GitHub for musicians where we treat music like source code. So every time people create music on their computer, every time they save, we extract the content of what they've done, we analyze that, and we create some sort of commit. And we say, okay, this is the first step. And we give them a timeline, and then they can go back and forth, add collaborators, they can release different parts of their tracks, and they can expose the source code of the music and release the entire track to the world. And this is all happening through the internet, basically. Yes, I mean, the music is being created locally on their computers, mm -hmm. um, but as soon as they save, it goes onto the internet, and then that's how they, they interact. We have a client running on their machines, and then everything else is web-based. And most of the work, actually, even the analysis of the files is all done server-side. We do very little on the client side. And you said you got started in 2003, so it's been a while. Sorry, 2013. 13. Okay, that makes a that that jives a little bit more with the timeline that that <laughs> I had thought. Was it a big leap of faith to get started? Um, yes and no. Um, my background is actually in sound engineering. That's what I started before I got into programming. Um, I went to school and I studied uh, sound engineering uh, in France, and I worked as a sound engineer for many years in France, in the UK, uh, and all over Europe and Asia. I saw the, the revolution going from analog to digital. I saw what it meant to be able to convert a signal, an analog signal, into a digital signal and be able to see the waveforms and, and understanding what it means to musicians and to people creating art, sound-based art. And I really wanted to see the same thing happening with the web because a lot of the music creation now doesn't really happen on the web. On the one hand, I believe that it would change the world. But on the other hand, that was a big risk because it's a really hard thing to do. Nobody ever did it. Uh, but with the team we set up together and uh, the investors we had, I thought it was it's pretty self-bait for, for me. Give me an idea of the investors that are involved in Splice. 
Um, so our, we, we did a sit-around on a Series A, and USV Union Square Ventures uh, and True Ventures are the two VCs who've been leading the, the rounds. They are our lead investors, and the other people behind you know, SoundCloud and Twitter and Foursquare and Tumblr and all these different uh, HashiCorp and a lot of really amazing companies. And it's been two years now. What's the team look like now? Well, so it's actually a year. Uh, it's a bit more than a year because we raised money in October 2013, I believe. Uh, so it's, it's been a year and a few months. Um, I think we're about 14 people right now. We're divided between New York and LA, and we have a few remote people. Uh, so we have someone in Scotland, someone in Quebec, Zach Briggs, who just started today in Chicago. The rest of the engineers are in LA. And then in New York, we have uh, the business design marketing people. Uh, so we have about 14 people with eight engineers, I believe. And so in New York and L.A., you have physical offices? Yes, we do. And then some people are remote. Is there a balance that you tried to strike between the remote work, or is there a philosophy there that, that's at work? Not really. I mean, we we like to have people around uh, because it's you know at the beginning of the company it means a lot to build the white culture, but we also care a lot about having the white people. And you know what I think I discovered through past experiences at Living Social and at Sony and other places that if you have the right people being remote, it's actually not too much of a problem. Um, so we don't really shoot for. We don't try to hire remote people. We just find amazing people who want to be remote and that's the only option we have and they know how to make it work so we set up the company since the beginning where we kind of are remote between New York and LA so we make sure the engineering culture really adapts well to that um, aspect of remote work Do you have any specific tips for how to get that set up and working well? Uh, not really, I mean I think, I think it's, it has a lot to do with communication um, mm -hmm. and it's understanding that when you work with somebody remote, you have pros and cons. And you need to be objective. And, and there are things that are harder. Like it's hard to get into a room and have a whiteboard discussion. But at the same time, as an engineer, you can really focus on what you're doing. You get less distracted when you're remote. Um, so I think it's more about finding the right temperament and the right people who can work remotely. And some people just work better in the office. So I don't really have a tip. You know, if you do, I'd love to hear them because it's still, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy. What we found you know, in the early days of ThoughtBot, we, we were all together and then a bunch of us had to move to different cities for life reasons. And we had to get comfortable with working remotely. About half of the people were in the office and the other half were distributed around and, what we found was, like you said, if you have good people, particularly because we were we had all worked together in person before, it was relatively easy to make it work well. But you definitely had to work. You have to work at it. Right. And after doing it for a couple of years, for three years, I was remote. We sort of said we have so many other things that we need to worry about <laughs> right. and need to work at. That's not one of the ones that we want to work at anymore. And so I moved back to Boston. I had the opportunity to move back to Boston and, and join. And now we have fully expanded again. And we now have different offices in different cities. And it's it's probably a little bit more like your scenario where you have these sort of core groups of people together in the office. And then you work cross office together. And for that level of work, you you've sort of refined how you communicate in your process and, and how you interact. 
for us in particular, we focus on having client work. So when we're doing client work, it's largely not cross office. So an individual project team is all in one one office. And then we collaborate on the bigger thought bot level things cross office. That's what we do. One thing we did that actually works well is we have a Chrome box for meetings. It's basically just a small Chrome box um, that's connected all the time to a TV. And there's a feed, a live feed going on between New York and L.A. So anytime you have a remote, you can unmute and like talk to the other team. It's kind of a window onto the other side. Yeah. And that works well because people don't feel like, where, where is everybody? Like, what's going on now? Like, how come I'm the only one dealing with this problem? You can just turn around and be like, hey, Joe, I have a question for you. And then Joe turns around and then answers the question. Um, that's, and that's that's, that works that works quite well with us, uh, at least for now. We'll see in the future. Yeah. So how involved were you in fundraising for Splice? Uh, I mean, being a co-founder, I, I was uh, very involved. Uh, but my co-founder, being the CEO, I'm more the CTO, yeah. uh, is the one who has a lot of experience in that and, and did a lot of the work. Um, I just showed up and answered technical questions <laughs> and showed that our team is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Had you yeah. been involved in fundraising before? I did, yeah, I was. I was okay, involved. So in it wasn't the first time you had done it? No. Uh, so first time for me, though, is the first time as a co-founder. Yeah. And it's a very, very interesting experience. Yeah, so tell me more about that. I think a lot of the people listening would be interested to know from a CTO, from a technical co-founder perspective, what is your expected level of involvement in fundraising? I mean, I'm I'm very lucky because I have an amazing co-founder who is able to really prepare all the work and basically tell me okay this is this is what we're going to do and this is why we do it and we were able to really pick some of the best um, investors that we wanted to work with uh, we wanted people who understand the long-term vision people could really buy into uh, the fact that we're not going to be able to change things very very quickly it would take a long time and they need to let us experiment and help us build a network and understand what we're trying to do um, so my involvement with with the, the round was or explaining the technology we're building. Obviously, Splice is very technical. You know, we the base of everything we do is a technical solution that we need to prove. I mean, it's it's a big investment to set up at the beginning instead of using something like Dropbox or another simple solution. We're trying to invent something that doesn't exist, and I needed to be able to convince investors that this technology is worth investing in. It's not just the fact that we can build a network and have big artists on the platform. It's also creating the future of music. I was asking about uh, remote work, partly in part because I think Splice, you're trying to create a tool which allows people to collaborate remotely on their music. Right. right? And that really hasn't been done before in the way that you guys are doing it. Right. I think, you know, people, people have been trying for a very long time. Um, the closest thing you would get is kind of a synchronous uh, work. So you have like big studios between LA and London, for instance, who are connected and you do like real time collaboration, but you would never get the kind of collaboration you have with code. Uh, you would not get like asynchronous collaboration and like pull requests and people commenting on specific parts. So that was never being done. And we really go deep into our, you know, programming roots to get that experience right. Even though music and programming are different, they're similar, but they're also very, very, very different. A musician doesn't think really in the in concept of branches. So we, we need to look at it from a different perspective. And that was never being done. And we never, nobody really exposed music differently than sheet music and like an MP3 or a WAV file. And we're showing you now kind of this DNA of the music. And that's kind of a new approach too. Do you find that your users or potential users get it? 
Yes, uh, we have uh, our users, at least the ones we have right now, uh, really understand it. Um, it's, it's interesting because a lot of our early stage users come from electronic music and hip hop. And I think they're maybe more technical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we still have quite a large base of rock and country and other kind of music, but it's mainly the electronic music guys, and a lot of them have some experience with the web. And they understand version control at a very high level. They understand that you can make multiple saves and it just frees your, your, your creativity to not have to think about like what happens. I cannot go back, right? I don't have undo um, when you create music. So I think they really get it. And our challenge is to, to get more people on the platform and to get them to help us understand what it means for the future of music. Because we, we're not sure what it really means yet. We start exposing that, but we don't know how people are going to use it. So that, that's a big, big challenge for us. From a business perspective, what do you guys consider success? Or, or actually, that's probably too big of a question. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what is your next business goal? What are you guys working towards now? Um, so we started doing a, a plugin store. So we're setting up a marketplace. You know, we're trying to remove all the limitations for users to work together. And a lot of musicians, when they work together, they use different plugins. They're like effects, synthesizers. And it's a pain because I might be working on my system. And with Splice, you know, we find all the files you use on your system. We find all the presets and they get synced automatically into your computer. But if you're missing a piece of software, you end up in a place where you're being stuck. We tell you, hey, you're missing this piece of software. And it's kind of bundler. Uh, but the problem is you cannot easily get that thing that's missing. So we set up a, a marketplace where people can buy and with one-click purchase, just buy this one thing that you need so you can move on. And that's kind of the next business steps. Like how can we, can we create a marketplace for people to sell their music, their presets, their samples, their all these things so music becomes easier. And also Splice is absolutely free. Right. So we have free unlimited storage. So we don't want to make money off of people trying to create music. We want to make money when they make money. So we want to give them opportunities to start generating revenue. And this way, we can also generate our own revenue this way. So the, f- the first step is, is plugins, but ultimately you envision people might sell their music. Exactly. Do you have a timeline for that that you guys are working on? Um, not, not really. I mean, that's something we're we acti- actively working on. Uh, yeah. There are different ways of, of selling music and, and distributing new content. There's the subscription mechanism. There's uh, through plays and there's like distribution through Spotify and YouTube and other other solutions. So we're exploring a lot of different ways right now. From a product team perspective, how do you approach organizing your development and your timelines and what people are working on? And do you have a general approach? Um, yeah, so we try to, I mean, we, we're adapting, to be honest. We've been trying a lot of different things. Uh, what has been working very well for us for the last probably six months or so is the no-estimate approach. I don't know if you're familiar with the no-estimate approach, but basically we, we realized that we were setting up this iteration process in uh, I, I, iteration meetings at like this point, and I know you, you talked about it in different podcasts, but people yeah. have this... You know, they, they put their points in, in their stories, and it's like you basically have this backlog. And usually, at least for us, we never really reach the entire backlog. Like, we cannot do everything we want. And the engineering team feels bad about it at the end of the week. You know, right. like, oh, well, how can we improve it? But it feels like we, we don't feel good about it. And switching to no estimates 
and kind of focusing more on like what is the real business value we can deliver right now. And let's, let's try to deliver it as, as quick as we can, the best we can, and learn from that. We were able to learn a lot, and that really helped us, I think, deliver more value faster. Otherwise, what we do have is we have some designers who spend time doing some product design work. Mm-hmm. They, you know, we have a discussion about, hey, it would be nice if the timeline... So, for instance, let me take a very clear example. We have a concept of a timeline. And the timeline is every time you make a save on your computer, we show you um, the different saves you have over time between you and your collaborators. And we started by building it kind of a you know, subway metro uh, map where you have all the branches coming, kind of like a git branching view of all that stuff. And it was very confusing for musicians because they don't think about it this way. And we evolved in different ways. There's the question of what is public, what is private. And what we're doing is we have somebody doing user interviews. So they basically spend time talking to our users, collecting this, gathering this information. And then we have the designers coming up with wireframes, very high-level wireframes, and having discussions with our users. And then we do small tests because we don't really have a concept of a big backlog. So we're saying, okay, well, let's give that a try. Can we improve the timeline by making this one small change and see if the metrics we're tracking are going to be better or not? So that's really how we're approaching things. That's really interesting. And actually, the episode of this podcast that came out today, uh, as we're recording on on Monday, February 2nd, uh, is all about how at ThoughtBot we've dropped story points for about a year now and have been just much more like the process that you describe. Right. So that's really interesting. So I know you from the Ruby world. Um, but I heard, I think on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that it was very soon and maybe it's happened already that you would have no more Ruby on splice. Is that true? That's true. It's kind of interesting. It's been 10 years since I started writing Ruby in a production environment. So I started in 2005 writing my first, you know, production apps. And this month is going to be the first time in my life or in my last 10 years that I don't actually have any Ruby in production. We, our stack is pretty complex because we have an Objective-C client. Um, we have a C-sharp client for Windows. All backend is in Go and started already in Go since the beginning. The frontend was in Rails, so the frontend was talking to uh, the backend using web APIs. And we also were actually talking to the database directly in some instances. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we have some JavaScript. We have some C code that's shared between you know, Windows and Mac. We have some C++ because we have a plugin SDK. Uh, and, you know, that's seven programming languages in practice, a lot of work. And um, we realized that switching the front end to JavaScript and keeping all the logic in the back end was just better for us. Yeah. Uh, first, you know, we, we chose Go for many reasons, but why not to give you an idea? We run on three servers uh, and we use less than 20 megs per server uh, and we handle terabytes of data per month. Our Go code is extremely fast, extremely reliable. And what I discovered switching from Ruby to Go um, is that the maintenance time went down drastically. Katrina Owen is one of our backend engineers, and she won a Ruby award last year. She's a great Ruby developer. She has a a great also website called Exorcism to to learn programming languages. She write Go full-time. And when she started after a month, she's like, Matt, I think I'm about 20% faster in Ruby than Go but I spend probably 60% less time maintaining my code. And now we were talking about it, and she was telling me she's as fast in Go as she is in Ruby. 
Yeah. Uh, which is which is quite amazing. Uh, I would not say that everybody people should just drop Ruby and Rails and just move to whatever other technology. But for us, having a strong SOA approach with Go being the API and the front end being in JavaScript gives us a better user experience, um, gives us better response time, scalability, reusability. And the only really drawback you're getting from that, well, you actually two, you get two drawbacks. One is SEO. So that's why we started by doing anything private, switch to Angular. Anything public was still driven by Rails and ERB to render the templates. Yeah. Uh, and now we switch, it's not live yet, but we basically, we came up with a very nice, at least I think it's very nice uh, solution where we generate a sitemap. Uh, so in Go, we basically generate a sitemap of all the public pages. We feed that to Google, which helps us with SEO. And then um, we use PhantomJS and we use a Go crawler that goes through the sitemap and generates an HTML rendering of each page and puts that on S3. Mm -hmm. And then when a bot comes to our servers, whenever they go through Nginx, we reroute any Go bots get served the S3 caching. So we always get a hot cache because every time people make a change, in uh, the back end, the back end triggers a job that refreshes the cache. So we always have fresh cache. And the bots get a really very fast response time, which is really good for SEO. And we don't have to worry about HTML rendering versus not JavaScript. And it's like, we don't have this, this concern of, uh, well, this is in JavaScript, it won't, it won't go well for SEO and it's going to hurt our SEO. Mm -hmm. So that additional infrastructure for that that you have to maintain, you feel is worth it? Well, yes, now I do feel it. When we started, I really didn't think it was worth it. That's why we used Rails um, yeah. to start with in front of Go. I, I didn't think it would be worth it at the beginning. Um, but that's also why we didn't put too much logic in Ruby. We kept the logic in Go because yeah. we knew we could make that change. Right. Um, it turns out that this change really took us about a week of work for one engineer and Trinity or ops person. So it's, it was really not that expensive. I was just scared of it because yeah. it's not something I was comfortable doing and you know SEO is important so we didn't really want to touch to touch it and ERB was and Rails were working very well at the beginning that was not an issue for us um, so I think now it's definitely worth it it gives us way more freedom and we the code is simpler it's everything is just lives in APIs. The front end is in JavaScript. The front now we kind of split the team between front end and back end. The front end developers they can really focus on user experience. We use AngularJS, and they can really build the experience they want, knowing they have the APIs and they have the freedom of exploring different things without being limited by uh, having to implement the models, doing it white, and then we have so much data and it's very complicated. We don't want people to mess things things up. So this isolation is working well for us. Yeah. How much Go experience did you have before you decided to use it for Splice? So I had some Go experience. Um, I started looking at Go when Go was released, or so around 2009, when I started building my first few things. But it was not ready. It was pre-1.0, so it was kind of rust the way it is right now. So it's changing quickly, and you're not quite sure. So I really liked the idea. I really liked the language and the simplicity and everything else, but it was just not ready. Um, I built an app, uh, a prototype at Living Social that never came out in production, so we didn't use that. I knew Go, but I was not, like, I never wrote any production code in Go before that. And so how did you have the confidence to know that, or what made you decide that Go was the right thing to do for Splice? Um, concurrency was a big deal. Uh, I was really looking at uh, Scala and Go. Um, mm -hmm. 
I did some closure in the past, and uh, I really don't like the JVM that much. Um, I think that the footprint was just just a problem, and I was really into Scala, but it was still the JVM, and closure was too complicated for me. I felt like I was like this brain overflow every time I was trying to go back to my code and understand like everything is chained and then I didn't know the type like I, I had a hard time tracing my code and I know I should have kept it small but I was just not smart enough to write closure so it was really between Go and Scala for concurrency yeah. and I love Scala but Scala was a bit so I had a discussion with a lot of the Twitter guys the early Twitter guys who went from Ruby to Twitter and they're the ones who helped me write better Scala so I was um, sending my code to Marcel Molina and I was like okay here's my code Marcel in, in Scala can you can you correct that for, can you make it better for me and he was like oh this is fun but really it looks like Ruby this is not Ruby this is Scala you need to write it differently Right. so I would rewrite it and be like well this looks like Java that's not the right way of doing it so let me show you and then we're having this back and forth and I realized when I finally got my style and it was probably just copying Marcel, it would be really hard to grow a team around that code base because you would have to spend so much time explaining what you're doing that it might not be a good idea as we wanted to grow the team, you know, decently big, raising money and everything else. But the code I wrote in Go was so simple that anybody could come behind me and understand what I was trying to do. It's very explicit. You do write a little bit more code, but it's, it's very straightforward. And I like that aspect. And the other thing is running it. You know, as we started, we didn't raise money yet. And I could run everything into a tiny little micro instance that was using just 10 megs of RAM. Um, and I like that aspect. I, I felt like I had more control over things. Turns out I think it was the right decision for us. Right. Um, for all these reasons. And it was great because the first employee we had, uh, Martin, just joined the team and I told him, okay, here's my code. I wrote all this API, you know, all this backend stuff. I know it's not great. You want to look at it and just let me know if you have any questions. And two hours later, I had like five pull requests with fixes and improvements he had done. Yeah. They're like, this is amazing. Like, did you really understand what I was trying to do? Like, I, I'm used to doing it in Ruby where you have so much magic. It's, you need to understand the context behind it. And it was like, no, that was very clear. I, I totally understand. You just didn't do it well. Let me just show you how to do it better. I'm like, that's amazing. And it was the same thing with, with Katrina when she joined the team. She was able to just jump in the code and grow it. And we have very clear conventions. We have tools that verify everything we do. Um, so it got us where we can grow the team without any pain points. Do you do test-driven development with Go? Um, Yes and no. So if you're asking about real TDD, uh, the, the red-green, uh, no. Uh, I think most of us have a tendency to do things in parallel. So we do write tests and code, but not always in that order. Yeah. Uh, but everything is very well tested. Uh, I think that's part of what we really like with Go is that you can really write tests that are close to it. And we're having a lot of discussions about how do you test. We actually use three different test frameworks and we went back to the built-in test framework because we just felt there was no need to bring something like RSpec into the world of Go. It didn't make sense. Right. The, the compiler catches a lot of things. You also have tools that are built in like GoVet and GoLint. We basically verify your intent and then catch a lot of the small problems. Um, so we spend more time doing unit testing and integration testing. Um, so we do, we do have a lot of tests. We also do uh, continuous deployments, yeah. um, meaning that every time we push and the CI runs, compiles the code, that gets pushed to S3, and that gets deployed directly to staging 
or to production depending on the branch you're working off. And that has been amazing for us. That really helped us a lot. Have you been working that way since the beginning or is that something you built up as the team started to grow? That's something that we built up, I think, probably a couple months ago. Uh, just coming from the need of like, oh, this is kind of painful to have to um, go and deploy every single time. Like, our code is so good. Why not just deploy every time since we know if the CI passes, we're pretty confident it works well. That has been a big change for us. And now we're looking into doing that for the front end. The front end is still separate and we still do it manually because we don't trust our, we don't trust our, our test suite enough. Now, just to be clear... We still don't we don't deploy to prod automatically. Everything goes to staging, and then we have QA, and QA then confirms, and then we merge staging into master, and that gets deployed to prod. Yeah. So you also uh, chose Angular early on. That was an early decision that you did, and now you really have a separation between the front end and, and the back end, and the front end being all Angular is what you said. Yep. Uh, what made you choose Angular? So I'm not a front-end person, um, mm-hmm. so it was not really my... I was not the only one making that choice. Uh, for Go, you know, I really chose it before we did anything else, and that was like one of the, the starting technology. Angular came later on. I'm very good friends with you, with Cats, uh, and, you know, we worked together on Merv, and he did Amber, and I, I played with Amber in the past, and I really believe in the concept of data binding and having the fact that you can really have a better user experience if, if you can bind things together on the front end. And we were looking at what technology did, did we want to use. And Angular had a big photo up. I think we have a lot of people really understand and use Angular right now. It's also developed by Google, like Go, and there's a lot of interaction with people using Go and Angular at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it really came down to the preferences of our engineers within the team. They chose Angular, I think, first because it was getting it done. Like It would do what we needed it to do, but it was also better for them because they felt more comfortable. They knew that they could hire more people with this skill set, and they would be able to build what they wanted to build. There's this discussion about Angular 2.0 that people are kind of getting scared of. Right. That was really not a problem for us, first because we chose before 2.0 was announced. And even now, we know there's so much mass behind it and so many people behind it that we're not worried about migration at this point. And things are very isolated. It would not be really a problem for us to pour the code over to another framework. So we're trying to be technology savvy and can look at different things. We've been looking at React.js and other things, but Angular is what made sense when we chose and we're very happy with it so far. So you mentioned you're 14 people now, and that you also mentioned that you brought someone new onto the team. Was it last week? Um, today, actually, it was his first oh, today. Day. Okay. <laughs> How much more do you think you'll be growing in in the short term? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I think we're, we're probably going to hire a couple more people this year, depending on, on how we tackle things. Uh, I have a tendency to try to keep the team as small as possible, especially when it comes to engineering. But we're doing so many different things. We have the client stuff going on. We have the back end. We have the front end. We do partials with integration with all these file formats, publication, working with artists. There's, there's a lot of things. So, you know, we'll see how, what the needs will be. But with... Three people in the back end, about four people in the front end. I think we're moving very fast, and it's it's the right size for us right now. Yeah. So you may bring in a couple more people this year. What kind of people are you looking for? Um, I think we're looking for front end people and maybe one back end person. 
Yeah. Um, the 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 backend team is really amazing, and it's a pleasure to work with them. Um, but it's it's a lot of work. Um, it's really a lot of work, and they they're really great and they're very efficient. So that's why we don't feel the need as much as the front end. The front end, we also have amazing people. The problem is that there's so much work on the front end. There's so much experiences we want to build. So much prototyping we want to try like so many things we want to try because nobody has really visualized music in the past and we know we need to try things and we need to show to our users what could be done and then they would tell us what they want for instance we have uh we haven't announced it yet but we have an api that lets you see the content of a song so you can see all the notes all the tracks all the waveforms and uh, we're talking about having a visualization experience around that. And people kind of building their own VJ experience around the music by just exposing that. And, you know, there's so many things we want to do. And for that, we do need front-end people who can move fast and try different things and react to our user base. So as CTO, you know, how much do you get to uh, code on a, on a regular basis now? Um, actually, way more than I thought I would. You know, when... It, I guess it's by phases, but... When I started growing the team, you know, I was talking to Chad Fowler and I think I was telling him, like, I was tracking my time and I'm like, I'm down to 10, 20% coding. And he's like, oh, it's just going to get worse. Uh-huh. And Chad actually codes a lot. It's, I think he probably spends 80% of his time coding. Um, but as we grow the team and as, you know, we hired very talented people, they allowed me to just spend less time doing management and paperwork and pull requests. I, mean, I still do a lot of pull requests, but... I do less work that was taking me away from coding, and I spend now more time coding. And I probably would say I spend more than half of my time coding. I spend a lot of my time doing code reviews uh, with the team just because everything we do in the back end is being code reviewed by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And because we only have three people, me included, I really need to be able to help them and block them. And uh, most of the code reviews are actually very straightforward. It's just to make sure somebody else understands what's going on so anybody can jump into the code. And I, I'm still the one writing all the parsers for the different file formats. So I do a lot of binary processing and integration with new DAWs, digital audio workstations. Uh, and I love doing that. It's great. Well, that's great. I hope it continues for you. <laughs> Me too. Uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think that about wraps it up for now, Matt. Thank you so much for your time, Chad. Thank you. This, of course, was the Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast. Show notes for this episode can be found at giantrobots.fm slash 133. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.